want to ask you to keep in your prayers the Promise Keepers Rally that is planned for August 4th in Washington, D.C. A million men will be coming together, and uh, it's going to be a great day of prayer and repentance on behalf of our nation. It's called Stand in the Gap. If you've thought about going but just haven't made up your mind yet, there's still that opportunity. In fact, you can get down there and back in the same day on a chartered 747, and you can call this number if you have interest in doing that. It's 644-8144. Call that number and you'll be able to find out the information as to how you can get down there to stand in the gap on the same day and uh, get back on the same day. Well, there's a Peanuts uh, cartoon in which Linus announces to his cranky sister, Lucy, that he's going to be a doctor. She says, you, a doctor? You don't love mankind. Linus replies to her, I do too love mankind. It's people I can't stand. That touches on the text that we have to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we think about loving people. The Corinthian Christians, like too many today, had spiritual eyesight problem. They suffered from soul myopia, that is, from spiritual nearsightedness. They focused on the now, and what appealed to their sensual experience, rather than on what lasts, and what brings genuine spiritual maturity to the individual. John MacArthur writes, Instead of being God's salt in Corinth, they were being flavored by the culture around them. Instead of penetrating Corinth with a spirit of godliness, Corinth's spirit of ungodliness had penetrated the church. Instead of being obedient to God's spirit and controlled by the fruit he gives, they were infected by materialism, pride, antagonism, selfishness, compromise, indulgence, hatred, sexual immorality, jealousy, and virtually every other sin imaginable. Instead of Corinth being Christianized, the church was being paganized. Friends, those are frightening words. The Corinthians emphasized the things that were passing and temporal, not the things lasting and eternal. They were caught up with that which is secondary and overlooked the significant. And that's why Paul urges them in a new direction, to get their focus off of the spiritual gifts, as wonderful as they are, and onto the life of the Spirit, which is manifested in the fruit of love. For you see, after the gifts have served their purpose, love will continue on. No wonder that he points them in the direction of love, calling it the more excellent way or the more excellent direction than merely getting excited about the gifts of the Spirit. For you see, it is love that will take us to genuine spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. There are two reasons that he gives us earlier in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, for eagerly pursuing love. These we studied last week. He says that we ought to make love the energy and the motivation for how we live, first of all, because of the preeminence of love, and secondly, because of the portrait of love. 
But as we look in the text for today, which begins in verse 8, we're going to see a third reason for eagerly pursuing love, and that is the permanence of love. Love, that is agape love, God's kind of love, is permanent in God's new order. Love is the eternal energy that is imminent in God and which animates all of his deeds. Therefore, when you and I act in love, we act in his powerful energy. Paul, would you like to have this? There you go. <laughs> I think Paul needs the notes I'm going to be using this morning so he can keep up with the uh, slides. It's a good idea. By the way, I had a compliment on you last week. They said that you stayed right with me the whole message, and the person who was here had been in another talk where the speaker was talking one thing and the slides were doing another. So, for you. I really appreciate it. Or maybe I keep up with you. Maybe that's what we do. So you see, when we act in love, what we are really doing is acting in the powerful energy of God, because love is imminent in God, and it animates his mighty deeds. Now, there are three aspects of love's permanence that I want us to look at in these verses. The first is the first part of verse 8, where Paul simply says, love never fails. Here we have the permanence of love's power. Love never loses its potency. It never fails. The word fail here means to fall down to the ground, like petals of a flower fall to the ground when the flower is dying. He says love doesn't wither. Love remains fresh. It is ever seeking the good of its recipient. The Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 7 says, Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. Just as God never changes or fails, so agape, his love, is the same. It persists. It doesn't give up. We can see this in Jesus, where it was love that motivated him to go to the cross that was so beautifully sung about this morning. It was love that caused him to die for those of us who were hostile to him. As it says in John 13, 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That is, he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the utmost degree. Love never fails. But love can be put off. Although love is a dynamic force unequaled, it can be refused. It can be rejected and spurned. Love's unfailingness may not achieve its desired end because love can be put off, and yet it doesn't quit. Love never fails in spite of the action or the inaction of its object. It just doesn't give up. Love can accomplish by its power what criticism, nagging, and condemnation can never do. Aesop told a fable about the sun and the wind, arguing about which one of them was the stronger. Finally, the sun said to the wind, Look at that traveler down there. 
Let's see which of us can get him to take off his coat. I'll let you begin. And so the wind blew, and the sun hid his face behind a cloud. That caused the traveler only to bring his coat more tightly around him. Then the wind came, the sun came out from behind the cloud and shone so warmly that soon the man removed his coat. Within that fable, we see this lesson illustrated that kindness and gentleness will often get results that fussing and scolding cannot accomplish. The permanence of love's power. Nothing is greater than the power of love. Secondly, we see the permanence of love's place, beginning in the last part of verse 8 through verse 12. He says, But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. The permanence of love's place. Spiritual gifts have only a temporary place in God's plan. Did you hear that? Spiritual gifts have only a temporary place in God's plan. Prophecy and knowledge, well it says here they'll be done away. It's future, passive in this verb. There's no effect that is given. It simply says they will be done away in time. The answer is when. Verses 9 and 10 seem to answer that. It is when the in part experience of the present is also done away. When the perfect comes, he says. When that which is full grown comes. And then he gives the illustration of a child growing to adulthood. A beautiful illustration of what he's trying to say. He further describes this perfect or this full grown or this mature experience as being when we are face to face with God. Now, Bible commentators differ over what this means, but I think the best understanding is, in a broad sense, it is the eternal state that is to come. It's more than Christ's second coming. For even after that, in the millennium, there's going to be prophecy and knowledge. Gifts will still be in existence. But he is pointing beyond that to the eternal state, to the new heavens and the new earth, and he says, then when we are face to face, when we will fully know, just as God now fully knows us, then, he says, there will be no need for the spiritual gifts. You will notice that he singles out tongues in verse 8 in a particular way, for he uses a different verb of tongues. He says, they will cease. This is in the future middle voice. It's reflexive, which means they will cease in and of themselves. Whereas the other gifts, 
that he mentions, knowledge and prophecy, will be acted upon and done away. Now there's a reason for that, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But the implication that I want you to see this morning is this, that love is never outgrown. Love is forever. Love is forever. The spiritual gifts are for a limited time, but love is forever. It is vital. It is as much a part of eternity as it is the present. The spiritual gifts are for time, but love is for eternity. Now he talks thirdly about the permanence of love's priority in verse 13. Love's priority. He says that there are three graces or virtues that abide. Three of them. Faith, hope, and love. He points to these graces as those things that lead us on toward this ultimate consummation when we will be mature, when we will be face to face. There's nothing that surpasses faith, hope, and love. These lead us on toward that mature experience when the gifts will be done away. Faith is reliance. It is dependence. Alan Redpath defines it as trust that rests upon evidence and leads to action. It is not blind faith. It is faith that knows fully well what its foundation is. And because of that, it is willing to risk all in responding to what God says. It leads to action. It is obedience that follows God, believing that he will not and cannot fail. And then there is hope, says Paul. Hope is a certain expectation. It is confidence in the future. It is the assurance of God's promises. Hope is optimism that is anchored in God. Faith, hope, and love. Love is that which seeks the welfare of another. It does so at personal cost and despite the response of the one who is loved. Love, agape love, can only be described by words like extravagant, lavish kind of love. Agape love doesn't give a beggar a bowl of soup. It takes the beggar home and lets him stay. And isn't that exactly what God has done for us? Sinners, beggars, He has loved us to the point that he invites us to his home to stay. We only need come through the door that he has provided. And that door is Jesus Christ. That is God's kind of love. These three graces abide. They endure. They continue on and will into eternity. But he says love is the greatest. Love is the greatest. Love is the best. It is the most important in value. Now, why is that? Well, probably he's saying that because love encompasses the other two. Notice in verse 7 that he says, Love believes all things. That's faith. 
And he says, love hopes all things. And so the other two really are wrapped up in love, and so he says, love is the greatest. And friend, throughout eternity to come, there will be love. Love incarnated in the person of the Lamb, who himself will be in the New Jerusalem as its lamp, as its light. The glory of God will emanate from him, not in a frightening way, but in a way that invites us to come to him as the redeemed. Love will be incarnated in the glorious person of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. His presence will be an eternal reminder of the purity of God's love. Isaac Watts, famous hymn writer of a couple of hundred years ago, summarizes this chapter and captures it beautifully in a hymn that he wrote that we do not sing. Had I the tongues of Greeks and Jews and nobler speech than angels use, if love be absent, I am found like tinkling brass, an empty sound. Were I inspired to preach and tell all that is done in heaven and hell, or could my faith the world remove, still I am nothing without love. Should I distribute all my store to feed the hungry, clothe the poor, or give my body to the flame to gain a martyr's glorious name, if love to God and love to man be absent, all my hopes are vain. Nor tongues, nor gifts, nor fiery zeal, the work of love can e'er fulfill. In summation about our study of the permanence of love, I want you to remember these things finally. Five things I want you to remember. First of all, that love is not a feeling, it is an action. Love is not a feeling. It is something you do. Now, I'm not a skier. I've never had knee surgery. That's how you know. But I know enough about skiing to know this, that for a skier, a downhill skier, to turn, he must shift most of his weight to the left or to the right foot. And when he does that, the other ski, the other knee... <laughs> will follow. And so the skier turns. I think of that as an illustration of love. The first thing that we must do is put our weight on the action. We must decide what the right thing to do is because of love. And when we have done that, the feelings will come along. And we'll be turning in the right direction. Even when we don't feel like loving, we can still act in a loving way. Love is not a feeling, it's an action. Secondly, love is not free. It costs. <laughs> it cost God plenty, didn't it? Salvation is wonderfully free to us, but oh, the cost... To God. 
And friends, when we love with the love of God, it's going to cost us something too. It means that something of us must be a part of this act. It means that some of our comfort zone is going to have to be taken away. It means that some of what we have preserved for ourselves, we give up. Love costs something. It costs us to stay extra time on a Sunday morning to work with children. When we'd rather go home, maybe. Well, I've been there two hours already. Jesus was on the cross for six You see, love costs something. If it doesn't cost me something, then I'm not really loving the way God wants me to. Third, love is not peripheral. Love is central to maturity. Please hear that. You and I cannot mature, we cannot grow in Jesus Christ until we have learned to love. God will take us through all kinds of experiences in life to shake us down so that we will learn to love. And the reason for that is that love is necessary for spiritual growth. And until I come to that place in my life where I am willing to give up myself, part of me, part of my resources, out of love for God and love for man, then I really can't grow. We have to come to that place where we begin to experience this love that Paul points to as the greatest, just the greatest. Number four, I want you to remember that love is not self-driven. It is spirit-empowered. You and I do not have the strength to love in ourselves, this way at least. We can do a kind thing for somebody or do an, an extra deed or, or go the extra mile on occasion in our own strength. <laughs> but we cannot consistently love with this kind of love by ourselves. We have to have the Spirit's energy. And that's why... Paul says in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit is love. You cannot live with that husband that is thoughtless and self-centered and emotionally abusive perhaps in your own strength. You will not be able to be his wife, apart from God's love. You will not be able to live with that wife who does not understand your needs as a man. Who doesn't consider the pressures that you're under. Or who doesn't know how to love you in your own strength. You will need the Spirit's enablement to do that. 
those of you who have been abused in your past will not be able to love your abuser in your own strength. But you can love that individual in the fruit of the Spirit that is love. You can do it. Corey Ten Boom used to tell the story about speaking in 1947 in Germany. You remember that she and her sister were taken to, to Ravensbrück, one of the prison camps of the Nazis, and, and there they were cruelly abused, and Betsy, her sister, died. And Corey tell, used to tell the story about being in Germany and speaking to a group of Christians in 1947, just two years after the war, and at the end of the service, she looked back and she saw a man coming up who was dressed in a suit, but she instantly remembered him as one of the guards at Ravensbrook. And in her heart, this bitterness came up, this extreme anger. She remembered Betsy and how Betsy had just been so cruelly treated that her strength gave out finally and she died in that terrible place. And so she tried to avoid this man, but he hung around and he hung around and finally it was the man and her. And she said, well, surely he won't remember me. I'm, I'm one of thousands of people. Therefore, I will just acknowledge him and go on. And he came up to her and said, you probably don't remember me, but I remember you. And she said, yes, I remember you. And he said, you know, I wouldn't blame you if you would never forgive me for what I did in that prison camp. But he said, in the last two years, I have come to know God. I have trusted Christ as my Savior. And I have acknowledged all of that to him, and he has forgiven me. And he said, I have come tonight to ask you to forgive me. And he held out his hand to shake her hand. And Corey honestly tells that she struggled at that moment. Can I do this? Will I do this? Why should I do this? And then she decided that although she did not feel very loving toward the man, she could at least forgive him. And so she reached out her hand to shake it and to thus indicate, yes, I forgive you. And she said, when their hands touched, she said, a warmth filled her body. And God poured a measure of love into her life that she had never known up to that point. I don't know what past experience may be staring you in the face this morning. Or what person's visage is in your mind as I talk about this. But I can tell you that until you come to the place of being able to love that person or forgive that person and show that person agape, you may well be stunted in your spiritual growth. Agape is powerful. It is powerful. But it cannot be self-driven. We don't have the strength in ourselves. But we can trust God for the power to do the right thing. 
And know that when we do, the feelings will come along. And finally, I want you to remember that love is not passing. It is God's permanent kingdom order. Throughout eternity to come, love is going to be the ethic of God's kingdom. And so I exhort you and I exhort myself and all of us this morning to become a person of faith and hope. Never neglect faith and hope, but realize that love is the greatest. That love is the greatest because of its power, because of its permanence, because of its priority to God. It is love that marks you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Some unknown person has written this poem entitled simply, Why? On the street I saw a small girl, cold and shivering in a thin dress with little hope of a decent meal. I became angry and said to God, Why did you permit this? Why don't you do something about it? For a while God said nothing. But that night he replied quite suddenly, I certainly did something about it, he said. I made you. And the question I have for you is, whom will you love by the power of Jesus this week? Whose life will be altered because you came across that individual's path? Who will know the touch of Jesus because your hand reached out to touch him? Or her this week? Who will know his voice because of your tongue? Who will know his love because you acted? Love is the greatest. Love is forever. Let's live the kingdom ethic now. Let's pray. Will you in your heart say, Lord, I will, by your grace, Live in the power, in the energy of love. I will live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Will you say that in your heart? Will you ask the Lord to open your eyes to see the ones he wants you to touch, the ones he wants to speak to this week? Let's be his channels, his conduits of love. Sing with me this little chorus that many of you probably know. Channels only, blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day. And every hour. Let's stand together, please, with our heads bowed. 
Lord, I pray that the power of love, the power of the Holy Spirit, will so be released in our lives that those that we come into contact with will know in some measure that they have met a Christian, a disciple of Jesus this week. And this I pray in his name. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us this morning in worship. And if you're visiting, would you please slip first right to the back here where you see the display, Grace Church Roseville. I'll be there. There'll be some other pastors and elders there. We want to meet you. And thank you. God bless you as you go. And have a wonderful Lord's Day.